maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On the podcast today, Asma Mir. The journalist, television and radio broadcaster joins us to discuss her recent book, A Pebble in the Throat. It tells the story of Mir's childhood and teenage years, growing up in 1970s Glasgow, while weaving in conversations about identity and the influence of her parents' generation raised in Pakistan in the 1950s. Joining her to discuss the book is Dina Nieri, the Iranian-American novelist and author of The Ungrateful Refugee. If you'd like to hear the episode ad-free and enjoy a full-length version, you can support Intelligence Squared's mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversation by heading to intelligencesquared.com membership or by subscribing to the channel via Apple Podcasts. Now let's join Asma Mir and Dina Nieri in conversation. Asma, your memoir takes us on a journey across borders, both physical and cultural. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your background and what inspired you to write this book? My background is that I was born just outside Glasgow in 1971. Um, Glasgow is uh, one of the main cities in, in Scotland. It's um, pretty well known, I would think, around the world, perhaps not as famous as Edinburgh, but um, famous enough. And um I was born uh, the third of four children to um, parents who emigrated from Pakistan to uh, Scotland in the 1960s. My dad actually came over first in 1960 and he had a job. He was an auditor. And then 1966, by then he was about 30, which was uh, considered quite old, I think. And his parents wanted mm -hmm. him to get married. Um, so he went back to Pakistan and a, a wife, suitable wife was found for him, my mother, and they married and then they came over to uh, Glasgow together in 1966. So I suppose I am a, uh, the daughter of immigrants. I'm a second generation Pakistani, uh, Scott, um, and the reason I wanted to write the book was I'm 51 now and um, I suppose 50 is, is a kind of landmark and I was approaching it and I had always wanted to write a book. 
um, I was very much into reading books and writing stories when I was a child. And I know a lot of a lot of children do that. But my mum was always um, convinced that I would write a book. And I kind of um, went off into a different area. And I always wanted to write this book because, well, lots of reasons. I wanted to kind of, maybe as you get older, you worry about your story as inconsequential and mundane as it might be, you kind of think, well, I would like other people perhaps to read it and to relate to it. Um, And also I, I suppose I was feeling quite reflective at the age of approaching 50. I wanted to write something down. I also wanted to write down and frame who I was because I have a job now it's a kind of same ish job I've been doing for the last 25 years, which is um, presenting radio programs, news programs mostly, interviewing people, government ministers, pe- just people who've been caught up in stories. Um, and you present as a very confident person, but you know, it was very much not always like that. There was a period in my life when I was, you know, um, too scared to speak to people. And I suppose I wanted to kind of bring that into contrast and to focus with with who I am today. Yeah, wow. And I guess when you're interviewing other people, you're not the one on the spot or being vulnerable, <laughs> but here you are telling your own story. And you mentioned your mother um, always knowing you'd write a book. Did she expect half of it to be about her? <laughs> Definitely not. No, I think my mum is of that generation. She's about 78 now. She's a generation that think their stories are not important. And they're always they're always surprised when their children say, oh my goodness, why did you not write this down? Why didn't you tell anyone? And they just think, well, because it's just the way life is and it's no big deal. Whereas obviously in 2023, we are keener, I think, and we're more open to listening to people's experiences and um, childhoods. Um, So she definitely didn't expect to be in it. And the reason she is in it is when I was trying to work out how I would finally write the story and get it out there. Um, I remember thinking, there are so many memoirs that are just kind of, you know, they're great, but they're kind of stock memoirs. It's like, this is about me and this is what happened. And there are characters that join in along the way, but it's about me. Um, And I had this conversation with my mum about, you know, how it was quite difficult when we were growing up. And, you know, you never really understood that mum because, you know, how could you? You grew up in Pakistan, you grew up, alongside people who looked like you. You never had the jeopardy that I experienced in my school days of of feeling um, different and of feeling lesser and of feeling unworthy um, and just alien, actually, which sounds weird, but it was because I was the only one. It was the 1970s and it was Scotland. There weren't many people that looked like me. And she said to me, um, actually, you know, my childhood wasn't a bed of roses either. And and I was like, what do you mean? You were like this middle class head girl. Everyone loved you. You know, you went to school where everyone looked like you. How could it not have been a bed of roses? And then she explained about her domestic situation. And I, my mouth just kind of fell open. It's like, what? Because I'm quite talkative now, believe it or not. And, mm-hmm. and, and I just, I was just <laughs> silenced while she told me. I was like, mom, why have you never told me this stuff? It was just to do with her domestic set up a complicated kind of extended weird family and um, which made everyone very unhappy for decades 
And then I, I just, this idea formed in my head, actually, you know what, I've been obsessing about my own story. Really, I need to tell my mum's too, because it's unexpected. And, you know, she grew up in Pakistan, I grew up in Scotland. And then at one point she comes to Scotland. And at the one point I go to Pakistan and we kind of cross over in the book, even though, of course, we wouldn't do that yeah. chronologically. And, and that's really where the idea came from. Like each of you traveling to the yeah, others, kind exactly. of, I guess, formative yeah. place. Yeah, that's wonderful. And she was, and she was, um, I, I guess what you do here is also take on her voice, which is such a responsibility, mm. such a literary responsibility. Um, you've done beautifully. Um, did she reveal anything to you that was previously unknown, I guess, in the process of your research and, um, kind of trying to understand her for this book? Yes, completely. So many things I didn't know about her. For example, um, she told me that when she was about six or seven, she wasn't doing very well at school. And um, her parents sent her away to live with an aunt. So not a real aunt, I don't think. I'm not sure whether it was a real aunt or a kind of pretend aunt. Sent her away 45 miles away for like six months to be with this woman who, um, I think she was a widow. She had two children, one of whom was disabled. And um, this woman would, would tutor her and um, get her back on track. And she was only six and she just found it unfathomably terrible and lonely and craved and pined for her family, as dysfunctional as it was. And I just remember just be feeling so, I mean, I don't cry very easily, but I remember just feeling very wet-eyed thinking, thinking of my mother at such a vulnerable age. But, but you know, this was a, this was a thing in a motif almost in, in Asian families that they would do this stuff back then. They would just be like, okay, you go and live with this person and you do this and you come back and this person can't have children, so I'll give you one of my children. I mean, all this stuff went on back then and it seems unthinkable to us, but I think it was very common. Um, in any case, my mum was there for, I think, six months and she was spurred on to do well in her studies because she knew she would be able to get back to her real home and her family, um, instead of being in this kind of house of horrors <laughs> um, where there were two other children who were just, she didn't, she didn't really like the other children and, and, and one of them was quite violent, the older one, not the disabled child, but the, the other older child. Um, and so when she told me that, things kind of started to make a bit more sense because you see your mother, especially a mother of 78 now, you know, a mother who, who you knew in the 70s and the 80s, um, in in a different light, you see a different dimension to them and you suddenly start to ex understand why they are the way they are. I always thought my mum was just born really determined and bloody minded. And now I know it's because of stuff, little things that happened along the way that formed her character. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. 
That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Yeah, yeah it's so interesting what you say, um, you know, because your mother's experience so parallels mm. my own and, you know, mine is in Iran and, um, something very similar happened to her, you know, being put with her grandmother to, to live. And I think, you know, we forget how much they suffered yeah. these mothers from, you know, kind of the old countries, um, because they put on these stoic faces for us and also just because they don't necessarily want to share. So I find it immensely interesting that your mother has given you a story to share in this mm. wonderful book. Um, but I wanted to ask you about, um, I guess growing up and potential conflict with her because, you know, as, the, as we have yeah. this cultural gulf between us and our mothers and, you know, our cultural identity shapes us as it shapes them. So uh, can you talk a little bit about how you interacted with each other because of this cultural divide and, and how it shaped you and your relationship? Yeah. I mean, uh, there are a lot of parallels because you, you wrote a piece about, you know, how your mom, um, and that generation of women were very, um, well, how can I put this? They were, they, they were very keen to, for you to cover up. They were very keen for you not to do anything that was considered, um, to, I don't know, too liberated or too tomboyish. You know, it was just, you know, you had to behave well. And uh, my mom wasn't that extreme, but there were things that, you know, I might be doing. I got her, this one thing I remember, I remember being in the bath and I was always in the bath with, I think, my little brother because he was like two years younger than me. And then we had this kind of, um, I think it was like a bubble bath bottle, um, but it was in the shape of a fish. And obviously fish have like, you know, the, the depiction that we have of, of fish is with, you know, um, a very round body and then big fish lips. Um, and I remember picking it up and kind of kissing the fish on its lips in, in a kind of overblown way that you, you saw people on TV doing. And my mom yes. was just like... Did you, did you French kiss the shit fish? Well, I mean, I, I don't, there were no tongues. <laughs> there were no tongues, but I kind of did a kind of like, mm, mm, you know, like the way that my daughter does now. And I would, of course, laugh my Mine head too. off now. My mom was like, just grabbed it off me. Don't do that. And I just remember being quite shocked, yeah. thinking, what, what have I done? But it was, you know, there's so much in I, that, isn't know, there? <laughs> there is. It reminds me of a time when, uh, you know, we were in Dubai and my mother 
got so angry at me for um, licking an ice cream cone in public. (laughs) And she said, you know, don't lick it like that. And then I thought, like what? I was just, With you know, I guess slurping I down this. You. Exactly. Exactly. I was just slurping this down. I was very hungry. And, you know, she just absolutely lost it. And I became at a very young age so aware that this was about this kind of taking on the responsibility for this disgusting male mm. gaze of, you know, what they might be thinking or something along yeah. those lines. But I, of course, I couldn't articulate it. Yeah. And and I, I hear that in your story too, this kind of a bit of early sexual shaming. Totally, totally. I mean, again, and this was because our mothers are the product of 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 their parents and the society that they grew up in. And obviously my mom would have grown up in she was born in, I mean, roughly 45, I think. So she's growing up in the 50s um, in Pakistan. And um, I mean, I have no idea what, what, you know, what it would have been like then. It was obviously a very new country. Um, and you can imagine exactly how it was. You know, she wore a burqa. She was, uh, she was covered. Um, and there's a bit in the book, actually, where she says that, um, you know, she obviously hated wearing it. However... She said that she kind of understood why. And the reason why, and I'm not justifying this in any way, was because, and I've lived in Pakistan and I know what it's like, that if you do get too close in a public situation to certain types of men, they will touch you. They will touch you. They will do all sorts of things to you because they are repressed or whatever it is, or they're just not good people, basically. I'm not trying to make any excuses for them. And so she understood actually what the power and the protection of this garment was while at the same time hating it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such a, an interesting way to look at it. And it's a compassionate way to look at it because, you know, when my mother would drape me in garments, I only hated her for it. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you know, those teenagers, the coming of age when you were, you know, you were a Glaswegian, you were Scottish, Mm. you were Western, I guess, Mm. and she was not. And was there battles about you becoming a woman? So it all coincided with kind of terrible things happening at school and me becoming very insular and quiet and studious and um, staying in my room. And in a way, I suppose that was the Asian parents' dream, wasn't it really? You know, (laughs) because I wasn't off smoking and drinking and, you know, doing all the kind of rebellious things that perhaps other children might have done in that situation. So I think they were, um, I think they probably were quite relieved. But then at the same time, my mum was very outgoing person and my dad was ridiculously outgoing. Um, And actually, my dad never said to us that, you know, you can't do this and you can't do that. And, you know, they they, they expected us to... um, to do well at school, to go into university, to get a good job, and then at some point get married. But the marrying thing kind of was never really discussed. I think my parents had this hunger in them that we would succeed and success to them was a good degree and a good job. That's what it was. That's what they drilled into us, that that's what we, that's what we must do. Um, so, so we were uh, very much, uh, I was very much, I suppose, not a problem in that in that regard. So we didn't have very many conflicts over that kind of mother-daughter stuff, I think perhaps the way that, that, you, that you did, because um, just because of circumstances, I suppose. But I think I was always aware that there was, um, you know, that there was an expectation of how girls should, 
should behave. I mean, how was it for you? For me? Oh, gosh, it was a constant everyday battle, um, as if I were to stop myself from becoming a woman or as if I could. Mm. And, and if I can, then why aren't I? <laughs> but, but you moved around um, a lot. So did, no, so but, did it change compared, to, depending on where you were? Or was this just something that followed you around? Well, you know, I, I think we were in, um, we, at first we were refugees, but then we settled in Oklahoma. Mm. And I think my American childhood definitely mirrored yours, your kind of Glaswegian one in many, many ways. Um, you know, just the, the, um, butting heads with people in school, the cultural mm. clashes in school in one way and then at home in another way. Um, uh, I think that was my doorbell. I'll just say the cultural clashes, um, in school in one way and at home in another way. Um, but I think, you know, just, it was a big battle all the time. Um, trying to be American, you know, putting on American clothes, doing my hair in an American way. And then my mother, of course, was Iranian. And I think this is, this is, this is one of the things that I just, I wanted to ask you about because I know while your experience with your mother may not have been so, I guess, outwardly combative, mm. there's always this divide over how Western we oh, become, yeah. you know, and I wonder how you experienced that. And, and, you know, just more generally what it was like for you growing up in Glasgow in the 70s and 80s. Mm. So I'm trying to think there, there were like certain things like in, in no particular order. I remember when I was 20, through 22, 23 or whatever, I wanted to get my own place. And this was like a huge deal. It was like, why would you not want to live with your parents? And I was kind of like, well, I've been away to university to a different. Uh, I went to England for university. It came back. Um, and I suppose I'd kind of outgrown home by then and I wanted to get my own place. And that was a big deal. It's like, you don't do that. Like, what will people think? And I remember thinking, I don't really care what people think. I just don't care. Um, and then other times, I suppose, I, I kind of, I, I, you know, I didn't really live up to expectations when it came to being a good Pakistani daughter, not in terms of morals because you know I was like a mouse so I suppose I, I fitted that but in terms of wearing the right clothes you know knowing what to do how to like if we went to a wedding kind of knowing how, where to stand what to do I never knew any of that stuff mainly because we didn't do enough of it you know my dad was my dad was very much like I think he my dad thinks he's better than everybody else he always has done <laughs> and I think he didn't really want to hang out with you know, he didn't want to be in the Asian um, community. He wanted to do his own thing. Um, so he did. Um, and that I'm sure that made him happy, but it didn't. I'm not sure that it made us happy because we didn't really have any um, peers. We didn't have anyone that looked like us. So that was difficult. So the net effect of that, of course, was that we didn't. I always felt that I was just not really culturally good enough and then my mom would say oh you know why can't you be more like x you know look how lovely she looks and she's got the nice clothes and the shalvar kameez and she can speak urdu and i kind of like well you never taught us urdu so i'm not sure how i was supposed to learn it so there was always a kind of you know a disappointment i think a bit of a disappointment that that we didn't you know that we couldn't i don't know just morph from one character from one character to another you know i think our parents um assumed that we would be able to move seamlessly from one culture to another but it was it's too tough to do that yeah and you always feel a little false don't you oh, in, yeah. in both settings totally um were you were the only south asian in your school so in my primary school absolutely i was the only one my secondary school was so huge i mean in each year in each year group there were seven classes 
So we're talking like seven times 30, that's 210 in in maybe the first couple of, you know, maybe up to year four or five. It was just, it was such yeah. a huge school that there would have been, there, there were other Asians, absolutely, but not always in my class. Like there might be a yeah. few, but again, there weren't many because it was Scotland and it was the 1970s yeah. and it was a, an 80s and it was an area that wasn't in the Asian community. It was the other side of Glasgow, the Asian community lived mostly in the south. And of course, my dad decided, let's go to the north. <laughs> so we were in the north and there weren't that many. But in my secondary school, there were a few. But in my primary school, I'm pretty sure I've looked at um, class photos and I, I went back 100%. I was the only one. Yeah. And I, I don't suppose, I guess, um, it would be an inclination to befriend them. I mean, I think for mm. me, if there had been other Iranians in my school, I wouldn't have gravitated toward them. I mean, you, you want to assimilate, don't you? Yeah, that's so interesting. I suppose I never really... Um, I don't know if I ever had made that conscious decision. So in primary school, obviously there were none. And then in secondary school, yeah, I probably did make that make a decision to stay away. Um, if I think about it now, I probably did because you just wanted to keep your head down. You didn't want to draw attention yeah. to yourself in any way, you know. I mean, there's this bit in the book about we were doing religious education and the teacher was like, well, you know, you're a Muslim. And I'm thinking, am I? <gasps> okay. Yeah. Uh, because I never thought of myself as Muslim. I always thought of myself wrongly, actually, as Pakistani, when the right thing would have been Scottish Pakistani. But I was just told, it was hammered into me that you are Pakistani, you are Pakistani. I actually grew up, and this is maybe my own fault for not being educated enough to look up the definition. But I actually thought for the first 10, 12 years of my life, I thought I was an immigrant. Because I thought immigrant was someone who wasn't white. And then one day someone said to me, they said, you're not an immigrant, you're the child of immigrants. And, I, and then I just suddenly thought, oh, yes, well, it doesn't make it any better, but still, thanks. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I think it's so interesting just how much also, you know, as children, we're told what we are, you know, and, and also growing up. Um, and, you know, the, I, I see some of the children now, you know, because some of the media that they're seeing, et cetera. And in schools, you know, my own daughter, I see uh, her watching television shows, et cetera, where like crews of, you know, like cool brown girls yeah. roll in together. And I'm like, we couldn't do that. Are you kidding me? I, 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 I wouldn't go looking for the other person and then discuss who or what we are. No. Um, I was, you know, I've been told in my, um, throughout the course of my life, you're a woman of color, you're white, you're this, mm. you're that. But also I've been told I'm not a real Iranian. No. Um, I wonder if you've ever been told that that, you know, you are not, say, authentic enough for Pakistan or for people from Pakistan in, in, in the way that some of us have in second or even first generation. Oh, totally, totally. Um, so I was never Pakistani enough in Glasgow because I couldn't speak the language and I couldn't, you know, wear the clothes properly. And I, you know, I didn't know what you're supposed to do on a mendi. You know, I didn't know any of this stuff or what songs you had to sing because, you know, I'd never been taught them. Yeah. And then when I went to Pakistan and lived there for six, six to eight months, I mean, it was lovely, actually. It was really nice to be amongst people who looked like me. Um, you know, we all kind of looked. How old were you? I was 13 or something like that, 13 years old. Um, so that was nice. It was like a kind of welcome relief. But, you know, I soon realised that this is not the magic solution because unless you do a lot of work here, unless you learn the language, unless you um, integrate, bizarrely, properly into this society um, and learn to do things a certain way and to be less free, because Pakistan, obviously for women, um, it's changed over the years, it's gone up and it's gone down. 
But, you know, you are, you know, I can't drive. I I couldn't just like, oh, I'm just going to go for a drive, you know, like you could in Glasgow. So there were, you know, there were pros and cons to everything. But I remember just thinking, you know, like we'd go and see relatives and they'd be like, oh, they start talking or though and you'd start you'd give a little try a little bit and then they would all laugh because it was rubbish and you had a funny accent and your skin was very fair and you were just kind of like you just not you were not real enough for them you didn't really pass the test so they didn't mean to be unkind but I I just remember feeling kind of that same discomfort and thinking oh I don't fit in here either where am I gonna fit in when am I gonna find my home you know and um I don't know if, well, it takes you, it takes you decades to find your home. Decades. It does. And that's heartbreaking. Just the hope that you put into that, (laughs) um, you know, going there. And I just want to go back a little bit because before you went, your mother left when you were 12 for Pakistan for eight months, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, so was there, while she was gone and before you went to Pakistan, um, how did this affect you? But also, I guess, what kind of expectations did you form for the eventual trip? Um, My trip to Pakistan? Yeah. Um, uh, did you, I mean, did, I guess, I guess you didn't really know you were going. No, uh, I didn't. She came back and asked you to go. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So what happened is my mom, uh, we we're all living in Glasgow and then my brother who is autistic, um, but we didn't know that at the time, obviously, he couldn't really go to the same schools as, as all of, as all of us. So they were constantly, you know, this kind of, um, this was a huge part of our childhood, just the fact that we had to protect him, that we had to nurture him, look after him, make allowances for him. Everything kind of everything was built around him, you know, trips to restaurants, no trips to restaurants, whatever we did. So so my mum decided when he when I was about 12 that she would go to Pakistan. She would take my older sister. She's five years older than me, who would go to college there. She would finished her school. She would take my brother and she put him in a school there because, you know, it's different there. There's more extended family. There's not so much bureaucracy. Uh, they're not so kind of form oriented about everything and that he would be able to just you know there'd be something for there for him more than there had been in Glasgow so she went and I was just devastated because I was really close to my mom and I was left with my dad who um who in young in my younger years I adored but as I became a teenager I I grew distant from and and my older brother who was just a very hard um unempathetic person. Um, we're very close now, but back then we just did not get on at all. In fact, I would say we hated each other. <laughs> <laughs> so I was left with these two quite, un, you know, not very, not much empathy uh, men. And then things fell apart at school as, as they were always going to. Um, there was an incident um, and what happened was that um, there's someone in the class told the rest of the class that they were not to speak to me. Um, and, um, so no one spoke to me for the rest of that academic year and it was really lonely. Um, and I didn't have my mum and home was kind of difficult and, and not, not incredibly warm. You know, my dad did his best, you know, he he would like take me to school in the morning and buy me shoes and, you know, nice shoes and, you know, it just inappropriate shoes for school. But I just thought, well, I've got to get some perks out of this. Um, but it was a really, really tough, tough thing. And then when my mum eventually came back, I just said to her, I am not going, don't you, I will not go to that school. I will literally run away. I will never come back. I'm not going to that school. If you're going to go back to Pakistan, you, you take me with you. I didn't care. I had no idea what it would be like. Um, I didn't have a good view of it. I thought it was obviously this backward place because everyone had told me that it was, you know, everyone 
white told me that Pakistan was just a dreadful place full of mud huts and 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 people swinging from trees and I thought well I don't really want to go there but you know what I'll take my chances and that's that's why I went and I didn't find any mud huts or people swinging from trees I found a really interesting cultural experience and I found the warmth of being amongst an extended family who loved loved me so much and that was completely priceless Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced and edited by Catherine Hughes. If you'd like to enjoy a full-length version, head over to intelligencesquared.com to sign up and become a member. We'd also love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcast at intelligencesquared.com. If you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then once again, head over to intelligencesquared.com.